Welcome to Public Servants Announcements. This is going to be, I know I say this every episode, and so I I don't feel any shame. I'm going to say it again. This is going to be another incredible episode because this is one I've been waiting on for a very long time. Um, We have an incredibly special guest to me personally, because in the last episode, we had my first ever counselor. And in this episode, which also is the final episode of season two, um, we have my very first counselor, this, uh, not counselor, sorry, excuse me for that mistake, my very first principal, head principal, she was my principal from pre-K all the way through fifth grade, and I've only ever had three, so when you only have three principals, having one for seven years makes a huge difference in your life, so this person was literally in charge of the school I was at for longer than more than half of my schooling career, at least um, primary and secondary school. And that is Mrs. Jenny Roberson. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Shelman. It's a delight to be here. And uh, I don't know that I have a lot of wisdom to share or too much excitement, but uh, I'll I'll do my best to to help you out here. And uh, maybe we'll have something to share with somebody that will touch their lives or help them in some way. Well, that's always the purpose. And I know just you can't get to the levels of education and the levels of life that you've gotten to without having an abundance of wisdom to pass on. So that's not my concern in the least bit. It is with some guests. It's not my concern at all with you. So how how have you been? I mean, I would hate to say since you were my principal 20 years ago, but how just how is life going for Mrs. Roberson right now? Well, it's just been going fantastic. Um, I kind of had a change in careers. Um, my husband and I got married in 2006. We were kind of late bloomers in getting married. He'd never been married before and I hadn't either. So it was a miracle. And uh, we've uh, been enjoying married life. But uh, I left Watson, oh, the school where you attended in about 2005 or six. No, 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 no. Let's say 2015 or 16. There we go. And um, had an opportunity to move over to Mansfield near Arlington and open a school over here. And so we actually uh, built a home over here. My mom, who is now 96, I'm pretty much her caregiver. And she was about 88 at the time. And she said, I'll move too. So we built houses right next to each other and she still lives right next door to me. So it makes it easy to, I've already run over there this morning with breakfast and uh, we help each other out a lot. It's great. She's still very alert and with it and um, just getting older, obviously, but it's been a good move for our family. I loved my time at Watson at the school where you attended. It was um, very, very special when you hire all the teachers and the staff and you get to know the families over the years, you know, I, as I recall, you had a sister that also attended Watson. And so, um, you know, I remember your mom. So, you know, I, uh, it's a family environment. So it was hard to leave, but it was a great opportunity for me to come over here and obviously for our family. So that's kind of why we made the change. And sometimes change is good. It's hard to go to a new district after you've been in a district for 30 plus years. Um, You know, I didn't know who to call when I got over here. I didn't know who to ask things for, you know, who to ask for things. And, but I learned and um, it it was all good. So um, life has been good since I last saw you. I can honestly say that. That's incredible. So first, 
the the most incredible you said a lot of incredible things the most incredible thing is your mom is 96 and she still lives alone yes isn't that something that's amazing is amazing and um goes to church almost every sunday you know she doesn't drive but we take her um she still likes to go shopping now if we go to walmart she just drives on those little scooters you know it's too much walking but uh she enjoys getting out. We're being a little cautious with all of this heat right now because yeah. for elderly people, it's pretty dangerous. Um, but uh, we get in that air-conditioned car, we can go. <laughs> so That is incredible. I've, I've literally never thought about being 96. <laughs> like, it's not a thought that crosses my mind. Like, what is my life going to be like at 96? I've never thought that. I just always assume there won't be life at 96, especially yeah. not living on my own, able to still go shopping. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty amazing. She, um, we talk a lot about the history that she's seen, you know, Mm -hmm. from telephones being in the home. She didn't have that growing up. And now, you know, she's got a phone just like us and knows how to do Wordle on her phone, you know, (laughs) and just, um, you know, it's just a lot, a lot of change that she's seen over the years. And I've I've wondered that too. If we make it to 96, what will the changes be like that we've Mm -hmm. seen? You know, we laugh about having our iPhone on our watch and now that's a reality from yeah. what's it going to be like in 30 years or 20 years or whatever so yeah, yeah it's, it's a weird was, thought. okay but you said you were in garland isd for over 30 years when did you get your start and in what position did you get your start in garland isd well another great question i started um in 1981 when i graduated from college and i got my job <clears throat> excuse me at the very last minute Um, It was in August, just a day or two before the staff development started, as I recall. And interestingly enough, I was hired at Watson to be a teacher there for first grade. And I worked there, got my room all ready to go. Kids came in and I worked there for about two days. And the HR director called me and said, due to enrollment, we're going to have to make a change. And so he said, we're moving your school, moving you to a new school and changing your grade level. And I cried and cried because I'd already loved my kids and I loved my school and I'd work night and day getting everything ready. And so I moved over to Toller Elementary, um, which was on the other side of I-30. At the time, I was living in Irving with a roommate. We hadn't established where we were going to officially live yet. We're still living with her family and going to get an apartment once we got money and for deposits and all of that. And so we... um, was really a far drive from Irving. It's the furthest school probably in Garland from where I was living. But again, it was one of those things that just worked out amazingly well. The ladies that I taught with, we still get together to this day, still are really great friends. The principal that I worked for, his name was Dr. Ron Taylor, and he eventually became an elementary director. When I became a principal, he was my boss again, just an amazing leader to work under and work for. Still keep up with him today as well. So um, started out as a teacher and then um, I stayed at Toller for nine years and then became an assistant principal at Walnut Glen Academy and worked there for four years. And then I moved to Bullock Elementary, which was actually the same street as Walnut Glen and worked there for two years. And then they called me and told me they had an idea. The administration called about opening a math science technology school and would I be interested and um, kind of one of those deals that I don't know if they really cared if I was interested or not, but they were going to move me there. <laughs> but I was interested. I thought it sounded really cool. And at that time, magnet schools were very much a novelty. 
that was not uh, common like it is now in so many districts to have all, all these choices. So um, uh, I worked there for one year as a regular campus as the principal. And then they gave me a choice of keeping the teachers that were there as um, for the following year to open the magnet school or to let them go to a different assignment. And then I hired the remaining team. And because there was a lot of technology involved, a lot of change, um, some of the teachers that were currently at Watson wanted to stay, some did not. And so um, I had to make those decisions. And um, <clears throat> Leanne Stockdale was my assistant principal. I know you know her. And we uh, kind of created a team of people that you know had to go through extensive training because again, as you talk about time flying, um, technology was all very new. And in fact, the technology that we had, we had TVs in the classroom. We didn't have smart smart uh, boards or Promethean boards. We had TVs that we projected on and we thought that was really cool. And, um, you know, even, even that was, uh, was cool truthfully at the time. And then uh, we, we were really uh, dedicated to having some kind of take-home project or gadget that each grade level could take home and some took home. We call this thing called Lightspan. It was a little game, but it had language arts components to it. Every grade level had a little something to take home, maybe not kindergarten and first grade, but the upper grades did. And um, looking back that, you know, now with the internet, you don't need different gadgets to do what we did then. But at that time, that was that was really, you know, cutting edge. And so we, you know, the goal of the magnet school was to bring children in from outside the immediate neighborhood, but then the students in the immediate neighborhood also benefited because they were in the classroom with the magnet students. So we'd had 22 kids in a room, 14 kids qualified as magnet students, and eight were there from the immediate neighborhood, and all 14 kids, you know, got the same education. And so we found that um, we could make really great gains and um, had a lot of success at the campus with a mix of children and um, with great instruction with teachers that were staying current um, with professional development and technology. That's amazing. So do you remember what year Watson became a magnet school? Uh, I think it would have been 1994, but I can't say for sure. Okay, 1994. I think it's First, super amazing that Garland ISD was so innovative because, again, we're talking 20, 30 years ago almost now, and a lot of schools are still, a lot of districts are still trying to find and build magnet programs, and Garland started with an elementary school 30 years ago. That is, I mean, a lot of people's lifetimes, and so y'all have seen a lot of students come in and benefit from those programs. But before I even get to that, I, I remember the giant TVs, they were on these giant rolling carts. Um, what teachers now use, if they're like a traveling teacher, I don't, those aren't even really a thing anymore as often as they used to be. But traveling teachers used to put all of their stuff on these big rolling carts. Well, when I started at Watson, that's where the TV sat and it was a giant TV. And then there was another one for the giant projector that you needed the clear, um, projectable, I guess. I don't, I've never taught with them, so I don't know what they were called. 
by the time I was in fourth grade, we had Elmo. So it was <laughs> Elmo but, was a big hit. <laughs> but I can remember in second grade, and I don't even remember what it was or what it looked like. And I didn't remember this until you just said it, how everyone had these take-home things. But in second grade, all of us were so excited because we knew we were going to get like this giant, it was like a beige, and I feel like it may have been a laptop, but you couldn't really surf the internet with it. It was just kind of a thing. And we all got it and we had to sign it out. And it was this big thing on like the first or second day of school. And of course, my sister was two years older than me, so I'd seen her get one. And so now I got the chance to get one and everybody in my class was super excited. It was almost like Christmas in August. And I don't remember what we did with them. I don't remember the importance of them, but just getting that and feeling separated and having this like, piece of technology to take home with me, it, that made a huge like impact on Little Shelvin because I remember being super excited about it. Again, I have no idea, like obviously not as excited as I was about taking home the recorder, because I remember that. And if you give me one, I can still try to play through blind mice. But that that laptop-like thing was incredible. So when you're when you're opening or starting a math science technology, what what kind of qualities were you looking for in a teacher? Well, certainly, you know, I I, I kept this quality on the forefront all throughout my career because it's not that different from math, science, and technology. But the first thing I look for are teachers that are going to love children because um, it doesn't really matter how great you are at math, science, and technology if you aren't going to love your kids. And quite honestly, I wasn't all that proficient in math, science, and technology. When they called me in, I said, you know, those really aren't my strengths. And they said, we know. We just want you to go there and coordinate the program. I was like, okay. So, um, you know, I first looked for that. And one of the ways I would ask those questions to kind of figure that out is I would ask, um, what's your involvement with kids outside of school? Mm. And many times if they're a brand new teacher, they didn't have as much experience with opportunities, but they'd say, oh, I taught vacation Bible school, or I worked with my little brother's scout group, or um, <clears throat> they were moms or dads, they'd say, you know, I sponsored the soccer team, I coached this. I wanted to know if you really like kids, just like you are working with kids outside of whatever your job is, you, um, you like kids, you find a way to work with them. Mm -hmm. And so um, that was the first quality. And then, you know, I had to look for teachers that had the potential to love technology because again, it was all so new and we were gonna have to go through a lot of training, a lot of training and days and days of training. And that sounds crazy now, but I imagine they're still having to go through some training. You know, um, smart boards, Promethean boards, those come and go, the technology changes a bit, but really it's touch screen. It's not terribly different from one piece of equipment to another. But back then it was changing so quickly, it was very different. So um, just being willing to devote the time to training and the openness, you know, you don't want teachers that are gonna sit there in professional development, be bored and be gripey. That's not what we needed. We needed enthusiastic folks that were gonna be excited about change and new things because it was gonna be a lot of change. And truthfully, probably a little harder, <clears throat> excuse me, than most uh, teaching jobs at the time because the learning curve was so great. Um, and so I had to look for folks that were interested in doing that. And, um, but also that knew the content 
and knew how to reach at-risk kids, high-achieving kids. You know, that was very much a challenge. We had some students, and you still have that challenge in the classroom, but you have some who are on the very high end and some who are on the low end. And how do you kind of reach all of those as you give your assignments? And we can talk really big about being able to differentiate assignments and make this one work for this kid and this one work for this kid and this one work for this kid. But again, that's a whole lot of work on that teacher. Right. So um, I had to look for teachers that were very well-rounded and um, just had a love of kids and a love for learning themselves because it was it was going to be a challenge. Absolutely. And did you get to pick your assistant principal? Yeah. Yes, we went through an interview process and had several candidates. And um, as I recall, it was a committee. Um, it wasn't just me, but... Um, Ms. Stockdale was our number one choice at that time. And so I've mentioned Ms. Stockdale on this podcast several times um, because she is probably the most influential administrator I've ever had, no offense. Um, but, you know, students don't, it takes a lot to work with the principal. So again, the fact that I even knew my principal on, on this level was that it, in, that shows you a little bit of what kind of student I was. But also... I was with Miss Stockdale several times a week, every week for seven years. Um, and she taught me a lot of things. She was very, very hard on me. And I can remember in elementary not liking her a whole lot. But by middle school, it didn't take long. And I said that on the podcast with Miss Taylor, who I had last week. Um, she, by middle school, I can remember really understanding why she was so hard on me. And then by high school, it was like, oh, without Miss Stockdale, I wouldn't have made it. Like, there's a lot of things that could have went wrong. Um, just being, and my parents are great, both of them, my mom and my dad, and then my grandma. But I was still from a single parent household where my mom did have to work a lot of hours in order to pay the bills. So I spent a lot of time with just me and my sister at home. And a lot of what Miss Stockdale taught me enhanced what my parents taught. And so, how do you pick? that assistant principal and when you find that person how do you know that it's right because y'all were I only had two administrators all of elementary school that and that doesn't seem like a special thing or it didn't to me at the time but once I got in education I realized it is very difficult to keep a principal and assistant principal especially when there's only one principal and one assistant principal at the same campus for seven years and I think y'all were there together a lot longer than that actually Yes, we were. Well, you know, um, when I came from Bullock, the other elementary school, I didn't have an assistant principal. So the first thing was, I was just so grateful to have help. <laughs> Pardon me. And, you know, you don't realize until you get in that position, you know, oh, now I had somebody to help me with meetings. Oh, now I could delegate this, you know, and, and help with, like you said, the discipline. Obviously, that's a big part of the assistant principal's job. And so, I was able to delegate some of those things to her. You know, you, you look for, just like with teachers, you know, you look for someone that's going to be a, a good role model for kids. You look for someone that's going to be uh, organized. Uh, lots of details to being an assistant principal. You know, one of the things that people don't realize is the bus schedule and getting kids on the bus. And that always falls to the assistant principal. And I think we had like 17 buses or something. And when you got little kindergartners to fifth graders getting on a bus those parents want them on the right bus and they want them coming home and you know getting off at the right school when they get off and so you know you need someone that's organized detailed oriented 
um, and friendly, you know, that knows how to get along with people, can be stern when they need to be. And, you know, she and I are still great friends. We vacation together. Her husband and my husband and I get together today. We're all still good friends. And, you know, I think being friends really helps, you know, just like you said, you haven't had a lot of administrators. I haven't had a lot of assistant principals and every one of them I still keep up with. We're friends. Um, my one here in Mansfield, I had to call her the other day at the last minute and say, hey, can can you drive us to the airport? We've kind of gotten a snag. And she's like, yeah, I can take you. And, you know, just still friends. And so I think um, it's it's a fine line when you're the boss and being a friend um, to your employees. But um, by far, Ms. Stockdale was a, was a wonderful friend and still is. And so there's a lot of qualities that go into hiring different people. But we were a good team and enjoyed working together. And um face those challenges as they came together. Y'all were a great team. Thank you. And, and that's, I mean, I, a lot of times people say great and that it's overvalued, but it's, it, I mean, if you weren't a great team, you wouldn't have lasted as long as you did. And, yeah. and not just you two lasting, but y'all hired staff members that lasted an incredible amount of time. I didn't see a lot of turnover as a child in elementary school, there were like, I could go back and talk to my first grade teacher as a fifth grader. I can go back and talk to my first grade teacher as a 10th grader, to be completely honest. And that makes a huge difference in families' lives because of consistency. And it's just the ability to um, know what you're putting your child into. If I've, if I've had a second grader, grader go through like my second grade teacher was my sister's second grade teacher. And then it became my third grade teacher too. My fourth grade teacher was my sister's, well, at least the one I switched to was my sister's fourth grade teacher. So there was someone I knew and someone my mom knew and there was never a disconnect. My fifth grade teacher was my sister's fifth grade teacher. So there was never this. And it probably shocked a lot of people because me and my sister are totally different as students and we had different last names but we're totally different. So a lot of teachers got us and didn't know that we were related. Um, and then very quickly found out when they had to call my mom on the first or second day of school. So now here comes the question that's really been my favorite to ask you and Miss Kelly. And Miss Stockdale is coming on at some point. So when I get to talk to her, it's gonna be my favorite question to ask her. What was it like having to work with showmen from five to 11? Well, that is a great question. And you have to kind of realize it's been a long time. So my memory isn't as uh, vivid as, as, as probably yours because you lived it. But, you know, I, I saw a lot of growth um, and maturity. I uh, saw a lot of tears, as I recall, a lot of frustration. Um, you were uh, uh, very lovable and everybody cared about you. And we always wanted you to feel that even when you were being a bit challenging and kind of uh, needing some redirection. So, you know, I hope that your time at Watson, it sounds like you have pretty fond memories, but I hope that it was, um, like you said, when you spent a lot of time with Ms. Stockdale, that it um, kind of helped you later to realize the difference that she was trying to make with you or that I was when I dealt with you or your teachers when they dealt with you, that it did help you later, because that's really our ultimate goal. All about education is to help you later. You know, you, we teach you to read because we want you to be a, a voracious reader when you're older and that you would love to read. That's not everybody's thing. We hope you love math. 
but um, all of that is to help you later in real life. And so some of the social emotional things you had to deal with, um, we hoped we formed a foundation to help you later. And sounds like you kind of attributed some of that to, to your elementary foundation. And I hope that, that that's true, but you know, just specific things. I don't remember. I do remember tears. Uh, I remember some crying and we would just kind of love on you. And then we'd have say okay you got to get back to class we can't have this you know and so um, because you weren't going to learn sitting in the office you know that wasn't where the classroom action was happening you needed to be in the classroom but you couldn't disrupt the other learning and so um, when when things weren't going quite right we would do our best to get you back but I know there were times you were you were in the office and it wasn't ideal I remember that but see I've, I've been an emotional person my whole life I keep trying to tell my my most recent students because I tell them the first day of school, I tell people, I tell my students, look, I cry a lot. It happens. If it bothers you, ignore it. <laughs> like you don't have to address it. You don't have to say, oh, are you okay? The tears just happen. It's been that way my whole life. <laughs> I can't stop it. And happy tears, angry tears, sad tears, they all just come. I am not ashamed of crying. It just happens. I am glad you were able to vouch for that on this podcast. <laughs> So that my students know I'm not making it up. I didn't become emotional at 20. I've been emotional since I was born. Um, but no, I there was a lot of trouble. But I, I mean, 90% of my maturity came from just the patience of the people at Watson. And I mean, everybody from the janitor and the cafeteria lady to the actual principal. I remember the office secretary, like everybody. Um, the reading specialist who did pullouts. I never needed reading pullouts. She was also someone I knew, the computer lab, everybody. Just if you were in Watson, you had a major impact on me, probably because they just passed me around until someone could figure out what the problem was and how to solve it as quickly as possible. And it worked. I tried and I did actively try not to be a distracting student. It just is very challenging for me to hold everything in, inside. Um, so no, that's a great memory. And I asked that question knowing that the people I asked have had thousands of students. And I mean, at this point, maybe even hundred, over a hundred thousand, if you think of the years and the impact and the size of the school, it's, it's so to even be remembered by teachers. I'm sure there are a lot of students you have forgotten just because as a teacher who has done it only 10 years, there's a lot of students I've forgotten. And not on purpose. If I see them in the store, I may remember the face, but just to remember names and even moments is incredible. So once you became an educator, you said 1981, did you know then that this was something you wanted to do for the rest of your life and that you were going to build and work all your way up? Um, probably not that particular year, but a little, not too long into it, I started working on my master's degree, probably my second year of teaching. And, uh, you know, I just go to class at night and on the weekends and to get my master's. And um, at that time, of course, again, no online courses. You had to really drive to the colleges. I did my graduate work at Texas Women's University in Denton. So I was driving from Toler on the other side of I-30 before there was a George Bush to cut across the north part of town. So I was going around 635 and up 35 to get to Denton. It was quite a drive. Um, and so, you know, a lot of sacrifices took place and, and financial, you know, even 
at a, as a teacher's salary, just paying for graduate work wasn't wasn't easy or cheap, but um, I just made it work. It was important to me. So probably about my second year, I was I did a lot of curriculum writing, and so I wasn't sure if I might want to be a coordinator and work more on the instruction side. But at some point in the process, I thought, no, I don't want to write curriculum. I want to be more involved in the leadership part and running the school. And so um, that's when I started applying to be an assistant principal. And after nine years, I, I worked, um, when I was at Toller, I worked top fourth grade when I got placed over there. And then when I sort of realized I wanted to be an administrator, I moved down to first grade because I wanted to have experience in upper grades and lower grades, because I thought as a leader, I need to be able to relate to the challenges in the lower grades and the upper grades, and they're very different. And so I got experience in both grades and then again, became the assistant principal at Walnut Glen. So, um, but yeah, I, I think uh, fairly early on, I knew I wanted to move up and, and that this was the career for me. That's great foresight to know that you needed experience at multiple grade levels to be an effective leader, to be, or to be as an effective leader as you could be. Um, because I've seen kind of a trend in administration where principals now aren't in the classroom quite as long as they used to be. Um, my in fact, my last Sorry, I'm counting my last four principals, and I've only ever had six. My last four principals as a teacher or even as an administrator have a combined classroom experience of 15 years wow. amongst four people. And the last three only taught the minimum three years. Hmm. And so what is it, what's happening in school districts where they feel the need to have principals or what is allowing principals to get into that position with so little classroom experience? Well, I, you know, I'm not on that level of hiring and decision-making. So I can't really say, you know, um, depending on the size of the district and the quantity of applicants. I mean, it could be they don't have a ton of applicants. It could be that those people really shine well in interviews and have great references and that the powers that be think they're the very best choice. I mean, that's what you hope that they're choosing the very best choice for those particular campuses. Um, so I can't really address that question as far as, um, you know, why they're younger and younger and with less experience. Um, you know, we hear a lot about a teacher shortage. Maybe there's a principal and assistant principal shortage, but I'm, I'm just not aware. It's like, again, kind of something out of my wheelhouse that I can't really address, but um, um, I, I have seen that happen, certainly. Um, but I've also seen the young principals with little experience become very successful and move up quickly. So, you know, you can have really great ones and then some that don't work out so great. And sometimes you can have really experienced principals that don't work out so great either. So. It's a it's a tough, tough call. I'm glad I'm not on that level of deciding. <laughs> Me too. Me too. I, I've complained about it quite a bit. Um, but realistically, I don't. The principles I've had, one has been the absolute best principal I've ever had as a teacher. Um, and he only had, I think, four years of classroom experience, maybe three. Um, but he he absolutely was a phenomenal principal. And he ran a school a lot like I would assume he ran his classroom. It was very um, collaborative. And he ran his administrative team in the same way. And I worked with him for a lot of years on two different levels at two different schools. And so I got to see him in different environments and his style 
worked for me. It didn't work for everybody, but it worked for me and it worked for a lot of people and it allowed, it allowed a lot of people to grow. And then I worked with another principal who had three years of classroom experience and they were the total opposite as far as approach, but they were also very effective. Um, on the same time, it didn't work for me, but it worked for a lot of other people and it worked for the schools they were put into. And so I can't say that classroom experience would have been more beneficial to either one of them because that was never either of their goals. Their goals in getting into education was to be educational leaders, not to be classroom teachers. And I think those take two very different personalities in a lot of cases. But how do you think that affects students when the principal, the person in charge of the students and teachers actually, I'll ask both, how do you think that affects students and teachers when the person in charge of running the building doesn't have a lot of classroom experience? Well, I think the key to that is um, building relationships and the principal has to um, build relationships with his staff and or her staff and establish credibility, um, not based on experience, but kind of more, um, not what they say, but what they do. Um, same with the kids, you know, the kids don't have any idea who's taught what, where they've come from. They're just the new principal. You know, they don't, they're not checking the resumes and their credentials, but again, they know if their principal cares about them and gets to know them. And, you know, it's very different on an elementary level and a high school level. The high school principal very likely doesn't know every kid's name. Elementary principal knows most of the kids' names, depending on the size, but, um, you know, I've seen the quantity of teachers at the high school level, you know, you could have anywhere from 100 to 300 teachers and to build a, a family-like atmosphere is just a real challenge. And you don't build that based on your resume. You build it on how you're going to address your staff and connect with them and have small group meetings and that kind of thing. So there are a lot of factors that go into how you make your school successful, but I think regardless of your background, it just comes back to building relationships. Yes, absolutely. And I totally agree. And I think the principle that worked best for me was very relationship centric. Um, he wanted, he um, specified in his interview, he asked a question very similar to the one you asked, what do you do outside of school um, working with kids? Um, he also asked, and he's on this podcast, Dr. Doctor now, Rennie Lizardo. Um, he asked, um, what, is, what do you do in your free time? Like, what do you do to wind down or to relax? And then he asked, you know, put these three things in order, relationships, rigor, and um, relevance. And if relationships isn't your top answer, he, I'm not going to say he doesn't hire you because I don't know that to be true, but I definitely know that he's looking for relationships to be first. And then rigor and relevance can be in whatever, whatever order you want after that. And his goal, as he explained on the podcast and he explained to me in private several times is, if you care enough about the person, you'll do whatever it takes to make them successful. And if he can get people in the building that care about the students, care about the other teachers, care about the security officers, care about the janitors, care about the cafeteria workers, care about the administrators, then he can build the family and family does whatever it can to protect family and to build family. And I saw that work at the middle school we were at. I saw that work at the high school we were at. It was a lot more challenging at the high school because like you said, there's we went from 100 teachers to 300 teachers. We went from 1,200 students to 3,000 students. But the 
idea and the approach was something that was super impactful for me and a lot of other teachers. And he built a lot of administrators. And I thought that was incredible. And so it was a shock to me when he said on the podcast that he only had three or four years of classroom experience. I knew he hadn't taught long, but I definitely thought it was longer than three or four years. And so it, when I say that I've seen it and I question it, it's not because I think it's a negative thing per se. I just kind of want to know what the rationale behind it is. What do they make, have as research shown that people with less classroom experience make better principles because they have less emotion attached to the decisions they're making because principals do have to make a lot of hard decisions especially now with what needs to be done and the amount of work outside of just teaching the student has to be done is it easier for someone who doesn't sympathize with the teacher to give those instructions out and make it more of a business-like approach and i've noticed that a lot of districts want their principals to be more business centric and then their APs and counselors and behavior specialists and restorative practice specialists to be more relationship centered, but the head person needs to be more of a manager than a counselor. Um, or is it something different? And is that a positive shift? Um, so those are just questions I think about. That's what I thought I'd ask. So you were a principal for how long? Oh, I think I think 30, AP and principal, 30 years. Um, so AP for four years. So I guess a principal for 26 years. Wow. Yeah. And she started this podcast with, with I may not have a lot of wisdom. <laughs> but, I mean, to a lot of people who don't know much about the education system, principal is like a lot of people think it goes principal, superintendent. I know that's not true, but you are the last person to go to for a lot of families in a lot of instances for 30 years. What is that like? What is that, I don't wanna say power, but that is what it is. What is that responsibility like? Well, it's heavy. You know, you feel the burden. You know, you do feel like the butt stops with you. You don't want uh, concerns going above your head to your directors, your assistant superintendents, your superintendent. You, you want to handle your situations in-house. And for the most part, I was able to do that and very grateful. You know, um, every now and then something would go wrong and, you know, maybe I couldn't fix it. Um, you know, I remember one time when I was at Watson, we had a student that um, was field day and her lunch was in the classroom. And she forgot it. And the teacher said, well, just go back to the classroom and get your lunch. And the classroom door was locked. And this was before we were locking doors all the time. But uh, she went back. Anyway, she didn't get her lunch. And parent, very rightfully so, was very upset. I, I agreed it was terrible. It was a mistake. We made it. I couldn't undo it. I couldn't give her her, you know, I could give her lunch at four o'clock or whenever school was out. But, you know, it <clears throat> wasn't anything I could fix. <laughs> Pardon me, but. Um, I felt responsible. You know, I didn't know what happened until the parent told me. The teacher didn't follow up to make sure that kid got lunch. They were running all over the place. And, she, you know, the child never came back and said the door was locked. She just didn't eat her lunch. And, you know, she's a little kid. We don't fault her either. But I remember feeling really badly about that because I thought, oh, this is a whopper mistake. A little kid shouldn't be hungry on field day. And, um, and that's a small thing to, to recall, but I do recall it. Um, but most of the times you can... Uh, work with families and uh, 
reach some kind of reconcilable agreement if, if things haven't gone quite right. But, you know, I always would tell my teachers, I'll support you as long as you're right. I said, if you're not right, I can't support you. I couldn't support the teacher that forgot her lunch. All I could do was say, we are so sorry. This was a mistake. You know, we messed up. And so you have to be willing to, to mess, to admit when mistakes happen. I always would try to convince families that it wasn't intentional. We didn't intentionally want that little girl to not have lunch that day. It was a mistake and we all make them and it was a whopper, you know, in the scheme of things, it wasn't a life or death kind of a thing, but, um, but it was still a whopper. And so um, I think, yes, I enjoyed being in charge. I like being the boss. I admit that even my superintendent, he would tease me. He says, you like being the boss, don't you? I'd be like, yeah, I do. My husband teases me all the time that I, if I was on that show Survivor, they'd, they'd vote me off because I'd be trying to boss everybody around, you know, <laughs> go build a shelter, quit laying around on the beach, you know, but, um, but I did enjoy it. Um, but I did feel it was a very heavy responsibility. And I wanted things to be smooth. You know, I would tell my assistant principals all the time, I want to have a happy staff. I want to have happy kids and I want to have happy parents and not necessarily in that order. But if those three things can happen, then you've got a pretty good place to work. Not going to happen all the time. You're always going to have a disgruntled employee about some little something or a disgruntled parent or a disgruntled student. But but that was a goal to, to keep everything on even flow and happy. Okay, so I only have two questions left. One is, they're both kind of heavy questions, so I probably shouldn't have saved them to the end, but I just really remembered one. So you were my principal, obviously, if anybody here is doing the math, I was in elementary school, third grade to be exact, during 9-11. And I can remember very vividly that day um, just because anybody who has memory, at, had memory at the time can remember that day pretty vividly. Um, even the parts of the day that didn't seem like a big deal at the time. And so as a nine-year-old, I didn't know what was happening during the day. All I know was about halfway through the day, things kind of stopped and it was like, okay, we're going to sit in class. We're not switching classes. We're not going to recess. We went to lunch, um, but then we went right back to class restroom breaks weren't really a thing the rest of the day and then at the end of the day students started, started to be moving around so I started my day in my third grade class with Miss Haley and for the last like hour of the school day I sat in the room with my sister who was in fifth grade and they were watching the tv and there was just news on the tv I was not I was not paying attention to what was on the news um but the next day was supposed to be grandparents day I loved my grandma. This is the, like, for me, next to field day, grandparents day was the biggest day of the school year. Um, not to mention the year before. And this was the nine-year-old me. And I hate to tell this story on here because it makes me seem really immature, but remember I was not, so I was really immature. But the year before it was me, my grandma, and my sister sitting at the grandparents table and the lady sitting next to me who was also a grandparent. And I know her daughter still really well to this day. And this lady is still alive, so this did not end her life. This lady is still very much alive, and I think she's still working. Um, but she fell off the cafeteria table. And that is a memory for a nine-year-old. Like, it didn't hurt her. She got back up. But for a nine-year-old, this old person falling is impactful. And I know now she wasn't that old. And I say that because I've worked with her. So I know she's not that much older. She's a lot younger than my grandma was, to be completely honest. But, you know, 30, 45, they're old when you're not. 
And so I was super excited because something exciting was going to happen again on Grandparents Day because that memory stuck with me all year. Um, then we had 9-11 on the day before Grandparents Day. And I got home and I realized the news was important because my dad was sitting in front of the TV and he had just moved here like a month earlier, was sitting in front of our TV crying because my grandma worked in the World Trade Center in New York and no one could get a hold of her because of course you couldn't get a hold of anybody. And so he was literally questioning whether or not his mom had died. And she didn't, she's still alive. She now lives in Virginia, things are great. But, and her birthday is 9-11. So he called her that morning trying to say happy birthday and couldn't reach her. That's when he heard about the 9-11 attacks. Then he sat and watched the news the rest of the day. What was it like as a principal having to make decisions as that day went on, not knowing, because I've done a lot of research on it. Obviously it's a super important day for my family because again, it was my grandma's birthday. She worked in the World Trade Center and no one could contact her for like three or four days. Um, so I've done a lot of research on how other people were doing and what happened. Um, and my favorite comedian, Pete Davidson, his dad died at 9-11. So, you know, it, it's, it's an important day for me. Um, as it is for most people who are about my age or a little bit older. So what was it like being the decision maker or were you even making decisions? Was the district just in constant contact with you all day telling you what to do and what not to do? What was that day like for someone in charge? Well, you know, um, it was a scary day. Uh, even for being in charge, everybody felt scared and nervous. We didn't know if downtown Dallas was about to be bombed. We didn't know if they were about to bomb land airplanes and school playgrounds. We didn't know, was this the end of it? You know, after the Pentagon and the World Trade Center, there was just so many unknowns. So yes, um, we were told nobody goes out to recess. As I recall, we brought the kids in from the portables. I, I can't remember that for sure, but I think we did. I don't remember us not letting kids go to the restroom. That's funny that you remember that. I don't know what that would have had to do with anything, but uh, anyway. Um, but yeah, it was a serious day. My brother um, actually uh, at the time was pilot for American. So he was my first call. I remember pulling into my parking space and hearing about it. And I called him and I said, where are you? And he said, I'm at home. And I thought, oh, thank goodness. And so I called my mom and, you know, she, we knew he was at home because again, just like you couldn't reach your grandmother when they're out flying, you don't know where they go every day. They go somewhere different. We didn't know where he was going that week. And so anyway, thankful for that. But yeah, it was very scary. We had a lot of parents pick up their children all throughout the day, I think, because they were scared. Um, we um, uh, did try to kind of keep the news fairly contained um, because we didn't want children to feel scared. Um, even though we felt scared, we didn't we didn't think children needed to feel scared. And so, um, you know, we had kind of limited access. I remember the library uh, had a TV where we could get information. Um, and I'd go check in there and they'd say, this is what's happening. This is what's happening. But I couldn't stay glued to the TV. I had to, you know, kind of be around and talk to people. And I remember just keeping the teachers as informed as we could throughout the day. Um, it's funny when I talk to them, they remember me coming out to the portables and telling them what was going on. You know, I was the, the source of contact, the original source of contact for a lot of them. So it was a very um, trying day and scary and um do you remember, did we have Grandparents Day the next day? I can't remember if we had we it or had to, cancel. had to cancel. Yeah. Cancel. And the note, the message went out probably about an hour before school ended. So we mm -hmm. knew we weren't going to have Grandparents Day before the day ended. Yeah. And we were devastated as kids. We, I mean, we, again, had no idea what was going on and the bigger. Sure. But even the next day after I knew what was going on and I knew my grandma was 
I want to say missing because that's what we thought she was at this. But we, we like, I was, but my grandma that lives here is fine. I've talked to her twice today. She wants to come. Why aren't we having reference today? But we didn't have it. And we weren't told that it was because of these attacks. It was just Grandparents Day has been canceled. And I can't remember the reason. I, a week ago, I could have told you. And probably in an hour, I'll be able to tell you what the reason was. Because there was a reason that y'all gave. It was like not enough food or food shortage or something like that. Like it was a very like, mm, this doesn't make sense. And, but it, it, it changed the way I came to school, not that next day, but that next week after I really talked to my dad about the importance of it. Cause again, my dad is from New York. His mom worked in the World Trade Center. And so when I talked to him about the importance of that and what it meant for our country, who, by the way, my dad up until three years ago was not a political person and did not follow politics and didn't think about war he wasn't every day I go to work, I do my job. I don't think he voted until this, this last election, maybe two elections ago. Uh, I, I got my dad into politics. That's my, me and my Facebook post got my dad into politics. Um, but so at the time I'm listening to this person, I've never heard speak about the news. I've never seen him watch the news and he was glued to the news and he was explaining everything that was happening because my dad is very intelligent. So he was explaining everything that was happening and how it affected our country and how it could affect us. And that, you know, we live in Garland, but we're very close to Dallas. Dallas is a major city in the United States. If they're attacking New York, if they're attacking Washington, DC, it's only a short leap to think they may attack Dallas. That's why things are being so held close to the vest because my mom was home. Like my mom picked me up from school and was home when I got home. Like that wasn't something I was used to. So there were a lot of things that he was trying to explain to me as a nine-year-old and my sister understanding all of it, because again, they had the TV in their room. So she was watching the news all day. She understood what was happening. She was told not to tell me what was happening. I'm assuming by her fifth grade teacher who was like, hey, this is, y'all are more mature. That's why we're allowing fifth graders to watch this. Nine-year-olds can't watch this. They're, They're not as mature. They don't understand. And so my sister was like, it's okay, mom will explain it. It's okay, mom will explain it. And I heard that 20 times on the bus on the way home. So I can completely, I can't imagine what it's like. Because did we have email in 2001? I think so, but I can't remember for sure. I think so. I think so. Because in my head, I've always thought, how were they telling teachers anything? Like now we send out an email blast and every teacher gets it, some to their phone, some to their computer, but it's a very quick thing. No one thinks about how do we pass messages now. But in 2001, how were you talking to teachers? Were you literally going classroom to classroom? Yes, I did do that, but I do think we had email. Um, But yes, I did do that. You know, it was just the seriousness. It goes back to relationships again. You know, you don't send that kind of news. Our country is under attack and we really didn't know what was going on, you know? much later in the day maybe the next day and you know I don't really recall uh, the reason for canceling grandparents day but I feel sure the district canceled all outside activities they did not want uh, families to be in jeopardy I'm sure we had high absenteeism the next couple of days parents keeping their kids home out of fear you know are the schools safe are they going to fly a plane tomorrow into the schools you know we we just had so many unknowns and so um yeah, I don't, 
I don't recall email for sure, but I do remember going and talking to the teachers individually. That's amazing. So in your 30 years, I'm sure you've had a lot of, not a lot of moments like 9-11, that is disrespectful to 9-11, but I'm sure you've had a lot of moments that are world-changing moments that you've had to be kind of the voice for a lot of people. What is that like as a principal? This wasn't one of the two questions, by the way. Well, you just, you know, uh, you try to remain calm. Um, I'm not recalling another event, like you said, um, comparable to that one, but um, you just try to be the voice of reason, uh, reassuring that, you know, right now everything's okay. We don't anticipate anything. You know, it's, and again, not to equate it, but I remember a pretty nearby tornado and it was at the end of the school day and a bus brought kids into our campus to get them off the road. They weren't our kids. And, you know, it was 345 school was out. And we were all had kids after school and tutoring and we were still hunkered down in the staff bathrooms. And, you know, we just tried to remain calm. And you just when you're a leader, you, you um, even on the inside, you might feel scared. I can never admit to not feeling worried myself, worried about my family and everything. But um, you have to kind of rise to the occasion. And, you know, when we think about these school shootings and different horrible things that have happened. Um, a lot of times you hear about the principal running out. And, you know, we've been trained not to do that, but it's your nature to take care of your people. And so I get why why they've done that. But um, that's that's your goal is to just remain calm, be a voice of reason, reassure people that everything's going to be okay, even when you might not know for sure. But you know, um, I believe in God and I believe in a higher power and you know, I think we're not really in charge of anything. So, you know. You're just doing your job. That's right. So the last question I always ask everyone, and I really thought hard about whether I was going to ask this question or ask another question, but I'm just going to ask this question. Um, actually, if you don't mind me taking three more minutes, I'm okay. going to ask both because I really want to know what what is it like retiring from education after that amount of time after I think you said almost 35 years in education um what is it like retiring after you spend 35 years of your life doing something well it's 39 Shelman uh, that's oh. really almost hit the 40 year mark um it was weird I'm gonna tell you when you get up every day and go to school you know I'm used to four or five weeks off in the summer Christmas vacations and spring breaks and I thought August is going to come around and what am I going to do? You know, And so it was kind of a weird deal. Uh, I retired in August of 2020. At that time, COVID was still kind of in full force. And I um, had really planned on retiring anyway that year. It had nothing to do with COVID. But then I thought maybe I better stick it out. I just felt like I was deserting ship. But I found out the way my contract worked, I had to work until the end of August. And so um, at that particular year, because of COVID, they didn't start having kids until mid-September. So the new principal was able to come in when I retired at the end of August and be there for a few weeks before the kids got there. And that helped me to feel better about leaving um, my particular school because it, would, it seemed weird to me. I had even talked to them about, could I just leave August 1st and y'all put the new principal in so she can lead or he could leave staff, lead the staff development, do the hiring. They said, no, the way your contract works, you have to stay till the end of August. So in a way, it kind of worked out well. I was able to retire and um, 
you know, I, I really debated sticking it out, but because I do take care of my mom, um, I was concerned about bringing sickness home to her. And, you know, there was no guarantee because we were still doing some stuff, not a whole lot of stuff out in crowds or anything, but little kids are germy. <laughs> and so <laughs> I was just worried I was going to bring something home to her. And I just couldn't. My husband was a teacher and he he continued to teach that year. I mean, he did get COVID and thankfully it wasn't too bad, but we were able to keep it away from my mom. So very grateful for that. But um, so I was off for one semester and in about December, November, December of that year, I got a call from a principal friend and said, would you be interested in working with student teachers? Well, I had always wanted to do that when I retired, but I just hadn't pursued anything really because of COVID. They weren't even having student teachers, I think, for a while there. I think they were all having to do things, you know, virtually and on Zoom. So got involved in the interviewing through Dallas Baptist University. And so I got the job and I started working with student teachers, some of whom were virtual and I was watching lessons online. Some were live in the classroom and absolutely love it. And I'm still doing that. So I feel like now I've had an opportunity to still be involved in education and to give back a little bit with coaching up some of these new and young teachers. And so it's been really fun. All of my teachers this last semester um, have jobs. And so I'm excited about that. So um, it's been exciting. And this last year I had um, three opportunities. I got to go back and be a substitute principal and assistant principal here in my district because um, some people had surgeries and different things. And I absolutely love that because it was short term mm -hmm. and uh, pay was good. And they still let me go and do my DBU uh, observations. And so um, I feel like I'm still pretty involved in education. I haven't retired all the way, but my schedule is not very eight in the morning till eight at night every day. So that's nice. That's amazing. I think, I, I mean, I love that you're still able to impact students and impact the education system because like I said at the beginning, you're one of the most impactful people I've been able to come across in education. Just like I remember several life lessons. And when she says she remains calm, I can remember Miss, for me, it was Miss Johnson, now Miss Roberson. I can remember her yelling two times once while I was a student and it was because I literally walked out of the school building um literally I was supposed to go to the office and I didn't I bypassed the office and went straight out the door I thought it was better to run away um than to have to deal with whatever consequences are coming because I did something very bad I can't remember what it was but I can remember the feeling of this is not going to end well for me I'm leaving <laughs> and the office secretary called me by name and then ran out and grabbed me and pulled me literally back in the office and then my mom came and with my mom in the office, I got paddled by Miss Stockdale after being yelled at by Miss Johnson. Um, and I was like, okay, that's not the right decision. Never doing that one again. We're always gonna have a different option. And then I got the whole, it's about your safety. And if you would just be honest with us and tell the truth, you would get in less trouble. That's a talk I heard a lot, a lot. Um, and then the other time I came back and I was actually a part of, Express. So I was in high school, a part of a vocal ensemble. We were singing at Watson and another student did something. And I can't remember what, what they did, but I heard the voice screaming and I was like, I know that voice. <laughs> and I looked and it was Miss Roberson yelling, not at a student, like yelling to be heard almost because the students had started to get louder. I'm like, oh, this must be something big. Let's wait because this doesn't happen often. Let's we because we were right about to go on. I was like, let's give this a second and let her finish this and then we can start. And so incredibly calm, um, incredibly calm. And that takes a lot 
when working with elementary school kids. But my last question is, what is your public servants announcement? So your one piece of advice for just, it can be people in general, it can be educators, it can be principals, it can be your student teachers, just what is one piece of advice that you want to give the people? Great question. And just off the top of my head, I will go with, people don't care how much you know until they know that you really care about them. And, you know, I was in professional development training with uh, Dallas Baptist this week. And the provost used those same words that we've been preaching at staff development. Kids don't care how much you know. You know, they, they want to know that you care. How much do you care about them? And I think that's applicable to people in general, in life. Um, you can impress them with all your degrees and knowledge, but not really. Who You know, you're talking about the young principals. That's not what you cared about. Did they care about you? That's what you cared about. Did they care about your kids? And so um, I think that's my public service announcement is just show people that you care, that you love them, that they're valuable and um, they make a difference. And then maybe you can make a difference with them. Absolutely. And that's the perfect piece of advice, not just for teachers, which is where I hear that all the time, but just in general, as a person, it, it does no good to be right if being right has to hurt people in the process. Um, so I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate you sharing the wisdom that you gave us because I took away so many things. Um, just as someone who's been in education and someone who works with kids, even though I'm not formally in education, don't know if I'll ever go back. I may because I do love working with kids and I do love educating. Um, so just hearing so many of the things that you said and the reasons behind why you do things, we can always assume, but 11-year-olds don't get to ask their principal why they yelled at them or why they do certain things. And even if the principal takes the time to explain, 11-year-olds don't understand often. And I was one of those 11-year-olds. So be able to be able to come back 20 years after I left your school and ask questions that I thought or questions just that come to mind when I think about my time, which was amazing at Watson, is a chance that I don't take lightly because 99% of humans will never get to ask their elementary school principal anything. And so to be able to ask you and for you to be able to take the time to answer and take the time to talk with me for an hour and some change is amazing. I really, really appreciate it. Um, it means the world to me that you would come on. And I just, I can't, I can't thank you enough. Well, I'm really proud of you, Shelman. And I can tell that you've grown into a fine young man and I only wish you the best. And it was an honor to be a part of this. And, you know, whether we help anybody or not in the process, I always said, you know, whenever we had an event at school, if, if one family came or 10, maybe we helped one or we helped five or we helped 10, but if you help one, so maybe we help one, I don't know, but. Uh, well, anyway. you helped me. So that's the one we've met. Our right, there you go. <laughs> we'll start with you. There you go. Well, you have a great rest of the day. And again, thank you for letting me be a part of this and we'll stay in touch. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much. And that has been another incredible episode of Public Servants Announcements. I want to thank you all for listening again and continue to like, subscribe, share. And again, as always, if you know of a guest that would be great, um, you can give them my contact information. That is at Shelman Smith at Twitter or Instagram, or just type in my name, Shelman Smith, on Facebook. You can also Google Public Servants Announcements. You can Google Shelman Smith. You can Google 
any number of things, Public Servants and Affluent Podcast, and I come up, if not first, second. So please feel free to reach out to me, reach out to people you think would be great guests, and make sure that we continue having this podcast as a success. Again, this is the last episode of season two. And so after a short break, we'll be back with season three with incredible guests and some incredible topics. And just like we shifted a little bit from season one to season two, there's another minor shift coming. So I'm excited about it. And I hope you are too. Have a great day.